Good afternoon, and welcome to the Jewish Policy Center webinar. I am Shoshana Bryant, Senior Director of the JPC, and your host. We're going wandering today. The subject is about as broad as it can be. The choices are yours, and our guest, Cliff May, President of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, is our guide. Before we go to Cliff, here is your JPC commercial. We were established in 1985 as a 501c3 organization, providing analysis of both foreign and domestic policies. You can find our website at jewishpolicycenter.org. That's jewishpolicycenter.org. There you can read our insight articles, our in-context blog, and see our magazine, In Focus Quarterly. The winter 2023 issue of In Focus is up now. It is entitled An Agenda for the New Congress, which sounds a lot like our JPC Statement of Principles, except with a really great bank of authors. Here at the JPC, we support a strong American defense capability, U.S.-Israel security cooperation, and missile defense. We support the legitimacy and security of Israel against anyone who would deny them. As an organization that sits slightly to the right of center, the JPC advocates for small government, low taxes, free trade, fiscal responsibility, and energy security, as well as free speech and intellectual diversity. In this series of calls, which I just realized is beginning its third year, um, we've been really pleased to bring you scholars and policymakers on a wide variety of issues, including Israel in various aspects, um, the Abraham Accords on the plus side, Iran on the downside. Also, we've done Ukraine, the short war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which had much bigger implications, China, Turkey as a sort of oddball NATO ally. Um, Russia, and many other things. We will likely cover a few of those today and cover some other things as well. Your public service announcement. You are muted. That's it. That's your public service announcement. You are muted. But there's a Q&A function, and please keep sending your questions. We've got some great questions so far. Keep them coming. Let me introduce you to Clifford May, who, as I mentioned, is the um, founder and president of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, a uh, nonpartisan policy institute focusing on national security. It was founded in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. Cliff has had a long and distinguished career in international relations, journalism, communications, and politics. A veteran news reporter and foreign correspondent, he wrote for the New York Times when it was a serious publication. He has covered stories all around the world, from Argentina to Sudan to Hungary, you get the picture. Cliff has served as a commissioner on the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom and an advisor to the Iraq Study Group of the United States Institute for Peace, as well as on the Bipartisan Advisory Committee, <clears throat> excuse me, on Democracy Promotion and the Broadcasting Board of Governors. A former syndicated columnist, he is now the weekly foreign desk columnist of the Washington Times. It's a column you should read in a newspaper you should read. He is a frequent guest on national and international television and radio programs, co-editor of a book on the conflict in Afghanistan and Pakistan, as well as energy policy. And Cliff May is the only guest we've ever had who holds a certificate in Russian language and literature from Leningrad State University in the USSR. He calls himself a dilettante a wanderer through politics and policies. So we're going to do something a little bit different today than we normally do. Instead of my offering him the floor, as I usually do, I'm going to offer Cliff May a question. Cliff, Freddie Clay once wrote a book called Every War Must End. He posits that either victory or grinding stalemate is the result of every single war. Grinding stalemate leads someone to go home, as we did in Vietnam and in Afghanistan. There are those who say that President Biden's determination to stick with Ukraine is a reaction to the military debacle in Afghanistan. How do you see America's strategic goals in Ukraine, and how do you see us pursuing them? Oh, uh, Shoshana, great to be with you. Great to be with your audience. Um, there's a lot to unpack in that question. I'll try to hit some major points. Uh, strategically, most important is that Putin loses. 
uh, Putin is an, is very clearly an avowed enemy of the United States and of what we talk about as the international order that is American-led and rules-based and liberal. We can talk about what that means and why it's important, but he's an enemy of that. And he's a very close ally at this point with Xi Jinping. I mean, a year ago, they signed an agreement that said they have a relationship with, quote-unquote, no limits. And the the junior member of this sort of axis of tyrannies, one might say, is uh, Ali Khamenei, the uh, supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And an even more junior junior member, though an important one, is Kim Jong-un of North Korea. This group, and they have other allies, Maduro in Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua, Cuba, certainly, um, they are for the diminishment of the West. They are for pushing America uh, out and back. Um, so it's important that Putin does not win. And you have to think of what would happen if he w- were to win. Now, that doesn't mean that's not to say that I don't also think that the Ukrainians are fighting a battle as a as a as a fledgling democracy that we should also support. Uh, on the on the basis of values, but we also have st- very strong strategic interests that that, uh, that that Putin does not succeed in this venture. Um, I would, um, in terms of I, there's one there's a couple of points that you you hit on. I want to make sure to mention one is we need to disabuse ourselves of the rather naive but common notion that peace is the natural state of mankind. It's not. If you read history. Uh, you know that war is the natural state of mankind. You have you can have periods of peace usually when there is one uh, empire or nation state that is so strong that it can keep the peace among everyone else. That's what's meant by Pax Romana during the Roman Empire or Pax Americana uh, when we talk about America. Um, but other than that, you won't have that. Even if you think of the 20th century, we had World War One. Then we had an interlude, I would say, before we had World War II, which in some ways was a continuation of World War I. And then we had the Cold War, which followed immediately after. Now, there's good things about a Cold War. One, most important, it's not a hot war. And so if you can keep it cold, that's certainly better. It doesn't mean there won't be conflicts. There were conflicts throughout the Cold War. But for the most part, Vietnam being the most important exception, the U.S. was not directly involved. We worked through proxies. And a Reagan, a Reaganite I would say, and I kind of think of myself as something of a Reaganite, a Reaganite foreign policy, national security policy, mean, among other things, it means that you believe that you only have peace through strength, not through weakness. That means you can de- you can deter your enemies, and you deter them not by threatening punishment, you deter through denial by saying you cannot achieve your goals. That should have been done in Ukraine, that should have been done better in Taiwan, maybe we'll get around to that as well. Um, so you have to be strong if you're going to deter. And um, and a Reaganite policy also means that if there are others willing to fight your enemies and fight for themselves, that's great because you don't have to do it, but you support them. You support them as, as best you can. And so we are, I think we are sort of doing that, um, more than sort of doing that with Ukraine. We're trying to give them the weapons and the tools they need to defend themselves, their homeland, and their and their homeland. I'll stop there, but there's a lot more we could talk about here. Oh, there's a lot more to talk about, <laughs> but I want to narrow your comments here. That's a very broad picture of America's goals, and it explains why we are on the side of Ukraine in this war, which I am fully on the side of Ukraine. However, Zelensky's goals may not be our goals in the smaller sense. He wants Crimea and he wants the southern Ukraine back. Um, There is some question as to whether he's able to do that, even with our support, our weapons support. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, said this week that even with the tanks, um, what did he say? From a military standpoint, he said, I maintain that for this year, it would be very, very difficult militarily to eject Russian forces from every inch of Russian-occupied Ukraine. Now, if we're going to get to where we want to be, do we have to do it the way Zelensky wants to do it, which is to push them out of physical territory? If so, do we have to do it? Is this a call for us to enter the Ukraine war with all of the negative possibilities, including direct war with Russia? Yeah, I don't think we're going to. I, look, I, I think the good thing about the Ukrainians is that they're not saying, hey, we need you to fight for us. They're saying, just give us the weapons. We'll do it ourselves. For the moment. Hmm? For the moment. 
Well, for the moment, but that, but I, you know, I, I, I can't predict what they'll say in the future if things get very bad or something like that. They might, but and I, and I understand. I listen. I quite understand that. I, I think about what you do in their in their position. The Israelis have long maintained we are not asking Americans ever to fight and die for us. We would like you to have our back when we fight for ourselves, especially when we do so against common enemies. Makes sense to ask for that. Um, and I think that's important. I think the Ukrainians are doing the same thing and they're suffering and dying a lot to protect their families and their homes and their freedoms and their and, and their fledgling democracy. And I think that's important. I think we want to, I think, look, it, it, this. there's many ways that this could end or or not end and just sort of stalemate. That's not impossible. Uh, there are possibilities for diplomatic settlement. That's not the same as peace, uh, ceasefire, something like that. One thing you don't want to do if you can avoid it, which Putin wouldn't do, is negotiate with yourself first before you go to Putin. So I, I wouldn't say this if I were Zelensky. I don't think I would say this if I were in the U.S. government. But yes, if you get to the point, and we're not there now, where Putin decides, I need to stop this. I'm losing too many. Uh, I'm, I'm losing too many young men. Too many other young men are fleeing the country. Uh, I, I'm running out of bullets. I'm running out of weapons. I got to. I got to find a way at least to stop this for now. Then, in those negotiations, you might decide. Okay, they keep Crimea. The Russians keep Crimea. Most of the Ukrainians from two, after 2014 left Crimea. They fled. People who identify as Ukrainians and and Tatars as well left. Crimea. So you might let them do that. But don't give that. A, what you don't want to do is what Putin wants you to do is say, here are the conditions, here are the concessions you need to make. And if you do, I'll sit down and talk to you. That's a bad way to negotiate. It's the way the U.S. too often negotiates. We make concessions. It's what we often push the Israelis to do. Why don't you make some concessions? And then the Palestinians might sit down and talk to you about concessions they won't make, but other concessions you can make. That's no way to do diplomacy. So the, the thing is, and I've talked to people, particularly on the right, who I, who I would say are, it's maybe unfair to call them isolationists, but maybe not entirely, where I say, look, I understand you want negotiations and a diplomatic solution. Tell me how you're going to push Putin to do that, because if you're not, all you're going to do is push Zelensky to make concessions in advance. And that's really not a good way to go here. If and when Putin is ready to, to negotiate seriously, we will know it. How will we know it? Because he will go to one of his friends, Olaf Scholz, Emmanuel Macron, maybe Erdogan, maybe Modi. They all know him. Maybe Berlusconi. They all know him. They all have good relations. And he'll say, all right, you need to help me get out of this, but I got to get out of this with some wins, and here's what they are. So that likely would include Crimea at that point. Would it include the southern and coastal areas of Ukraine? I think probably not. Uh, would it might it include some of Donbass? Maybe so. Uh, take a city like Kharkiv, right, second largest city in Ukraine. Putin obviously thought that it would fall to him very, very easily. Why? Because it's right there close to Russia. Most people in Kharkiv speak Russian, not Ukrainian, probably may have think of themselves or have thought of themselves as ethnic Russians. He thought this would be easy. Didn't happen that way. What happened is people said, yeah, I may not speak Russian, but I'm not a Russian. I don't want to be ruled by Putin and the Kremlin. I like the freedoms we have here in this country at this point. And they fought. Now it's a He's Putin has ruined the city to a great extent, as he's ruined Mariupol and other places that he's hit hard. So, you know, so when you get into the depths of the negotiations, who knows what might happen? But there is no benefit in cons making concessions in advance in the hope that you'll make Putin a little bit happy and a little bit more flexible because you won't. Weakness is always provocative. That's a lesson we should have learned by now. I would totally agree with you as regards, you know, well, I totally agree with you most of the time. Anyway, um, as regards making your concessions up front, I would like to point out there that I think there's a difference between what the Israelis do and the position the Ukrainians find themselves in. Um, the Israelis were fighting finite armies that were dependent on others for their military capabilities. The Ukrainians are facing Russia, and Russia's stock and trade is that kind of grinding forever, killing people. Uh, they do it in their own defense. That was Stalingrad, and that was a hell of a thing for the Russians to do to preserve themselves and their country. They also do it to other people, um, you know, Chechens and things like that. So there's a big difference, it seems to me. And at some point, maybe the Ukrainians 
excuse me, have to face a bit of reality, which is that they're not the Israelis and that your ability to push the Russians out is something else. And it worries me a little bit when people just say, you know, all glory to Ukraine. Let's just keep funding the Ukrainians. Um, I worry about that because then how do you get them to go to negotiations? Look, I think you can get if they if we can see and and the Ukrainians can see that Putin is serious about negotiations and not simply looking for a surrender of some sort, then I think they would go. And I think it's not hard to push them. We have plenty of pressure we can exert on Zelensky. It's not hard to do. Um, But I don't think we should do that until and unless we see that Putin is really willing to make some concessions that leave uh, Ukraine a free and independent country uh, with territorial integrity uh, and a southern and a southern coastline, and we have to be careful that what he doesn't do is simply work for a ceasefire, so he has time to rearm and regroup for the for the next level of this war. That wouldn't be good either. Now, this is listen. This is all difficult, um, and uh, as wars are, there's no question about it. Um, but Putin is hoping that we go wobbly before he does, and uh, and we don't know how this comes out. There was probably, you know, in the Soviet Union, I spent a fair amount of time in the Soviet Union and studied it and studying it for more than that, more than a half century. Um, there were different power centers. It wasn't checks and balances, but there were different power. Putin's had 20 years to wipe out any other power center. It's very hard for someone to overtake, to kill him or have a coup. It's not impossible, but it's not an easy thing. If there is a coup, it'll, it won't be by Jeffersonian de- Democrats. It'll probably be by some very, very nasty characters. But they may be nasty characters who say Putin went too far. He made a mistake. He should have done as he did in 2008 in Georgia. Take two provinces and sit back and wait until everybody gets over it. 2014, take Crimea, start an insurgency in Donbass. People will get mad. They'll forget about it as they did very soon. We've been encouraging Putin, by the way, to do this. What he should have done, probably, and a lot of people thought he would do, and I can talk about why he didn't, was simply take another slice out of Ukraine, just cut another slice from the salami or the kolbasa, as we would say in Russian, and then say, okay, that's all I want for now. Why didn't he do that? And a lot of people expected him to do that, as you know. They thought that, that that's what Biden meant when he said, if it's only a minor incursion, that's a quote, minor incursion, you know, maybe we'll all get over it, okay? And, uh, but it wasn't a minor incursion. He said, I'm going to take the whole kolbasa. Why did he do that? I think because he's an old man in a hurry. I think he thought, I don't have time. I, you know, last time I took part of Ukraine was 2014. Nine years from now, I'll be, I'll be pushing 80. I'll be almost as old as Biden. My God, I don't know if I want to do that then. I think I want to do this. I, I want to do this quick and get it over with. And, uh, and there's a lot of reasons why he wants to do it. And let me just tell you about a couple. One is I, I'm absolutely clear that he sees himself in the role of a czar. And it is a czar's obligation to expand the empire when you can and restore the empire when you can't. And now is the time of restoring the empire because it it broke up. The Soviet Union was just another expression, a rebranding of the Russian empire in every sense of of, of the word. If you want to dispute that, I can explain why I think that. So So he believes that this is his mission. Like Peter the Great had a mission. He talks about Peter the Great. This is his mission. There's another part to it too that I think is actually is not is 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 fairly logical. Russia is in is in severe decline. Uh, their population is what 140 million or something like that, and the Russian ethnic groups are declining fastest of all the ethnic groups. And they don't have much to sell except, of course, um, fossil fuels. Uh, their vodka is not that good. I got to tell you, I get I, I can you can get better from uh, from Texas. Um, and he thinks, how do, what do I got to do? Well, I've got to, if I take Ukraine, I got 40 million new Russians once I persuade them that they're Russians or tell or order them that they're Russians. And then I get a breadbasket, and that's very important. And, and one more just historical note that I think is important. The proper title for a czar is czar of all the Russians, Siarosia. And all the Russians means what? Well, it means for specifically Belarus, white Russia which is already a vassal state under Lukashenko to him. But it certainly means Ukraine, which is meant to, which means literally the frontier of Russia. And the other thing to keep in mind, I wrote about this in my most recent column, 
Um, Russia is, has never been a nation state, really. It's always been an empire. It's an empire that conquered by land, not by sea, so we don't quite understand that. But as they were going east, they were conquering one nationality after another, some of which you've heard of, like the Chechens, some of which you may have, like the Dagestanis, but others like the Tula, which you probably haven't. And they went all the way to the Pacific and Vladivostok. What does that mean? It means conqueror of the east. And when they annexed it, who did they annex it from? Who did they take it from? The Chinese. Uh, so, and that's, that has to be a concern for Putin, too, that if he gets too weak at a certain point, Xi Jinping will say, it's time for me to take back northern China, which the Russians, as imperialists, conquered, and they did take back Vladivostok, take those those Asian ethnicities that are there, and take the substantial resources that lie in very lightly populated Siberia. He has hundreds, Xi Jinping has hundreds of millions of people he can send to settle up there. So I just, a bunch, a lot, a lot there, but unpack, but. No, that is a lot. <clears throat> so it raises again, as it should, another question. You talked about the alliance between China and Russia and about how they appear to be very, very tight together in North Korea and Iran all the others. But at the end of the day, China and Russia do not see eye to eye on certain things. And as you just pointed out, the Chinese probably want their empire back and they want Vladivostok back. They want what they want. Um, how do you see the China-Russia thing playing out in the future? Is China hedging its bets, hoping that Russia will take a loss in Ukraine, which will increase its stature in Asia? What's it doing here? It's not really an alliance between Russia and China. It's like a holding pattern where... Well, alliances are generally marriages of convenience, right? I mean, Stalin was allied with Hitler, right? And that was an important alliance until Hitler turned his back on on Stalin and decided to to hit him. Um, I think that, right, my guess is that Xi Jinping would like to see Putin take Ukraine. That's the better, that's better because if he does... Um, that threatens and weakens uh, NATO. It threatens and weakens the United States, which has something invested, certainly at this point, and maybe, and I would say at other points, even before this, in maintaining, a, a, it's one one more country we'd be abandoning. Uh, and we could talk about others. It would be, it means one fewer free and democratic country in the West. It means that Russia now is up against other countries that it can take back. Uh, and and Xi Jinping has on his to do or to conquer list most Im- most immediately Taiwan. It makes it he can say if the Americans weren't going to save Ukraine, are they going to really save Taiwan? Are they going to really fight me for Taiwan? I don't think so. And Putin, what Putin is likely would do, even though he's been very weakened, and by the way, it's a good thing that the Ukrainians are serving U.S. interests by weakening this enemy of the U.S. militarily in other ways. But if he succeeds in Ukraine, he has he has new resources. I think he would take Moldova very, very quickly, very quickly. There's very little to stop him from that. He already has this area called Transnistria, which is like a uh, a strip between Moldova and Ukraine. So he'd take that. And we're going to fight for, for Moldova. And then, you know, Moldova is not a, a NATO member. He might very want, well want to take Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan has a significant Russian population in the north left over really from Stalin times. Kazakhstan has oil. It has uranium. has a lot of good resources. Are we going to fight for his, uh, for Kazakhstan? Not an, I don't think so. Now, what, and this is my column this week, what if he decides, you know what, Kaliningrad, I don't know if everybody, you, I'm sure you know, I'm not sure you know, Kaliningrad is Russian territory that is not contiguous with Russia. You got Belarus and Lithuania in the way. He could say, have, have his forces and even Belarus, Russian forces, because Lukashenko can say, can't really say no to him, but and take either all of Lithuania, that you could probably do in three days. Vilnius is right near the border. Or just take the road in the southern part of Lithuania. So now you have a land bridge to Kaliningrad, where the Russian Baltic fleet is located. You think, and now that's a NATO member. That's right. How many NATO countries are going to send their troops to die to liberate southern Lithuania? Not many. Now, once you've done that, well, I think you can now, and, and believe me, this is what people in Estonia and Latvia and Finland and Sweden see. 
oh my God, what we're seeing is a resurgent Russian and, and aggressive Russian empire. And how far they go and how much they do only depends on what resources they have. And empires generally gain resources when they conquer uh, uh, small nations. And again, the history of the world, we like to think imperialism is wrong. People always know. Most of history, the history of empires and those nations or peoples that weren't empires got swallowed by the empires. So <clears throat> you're sort of conceding certain space to Russia under certain circumstances. Raises the question, what have we learned about NATO and what have we learned about Germany in all of this? We see um, Finland and Sweden rushing to get into NATO, which I would sort of think they would stay out and they would want to say to the Russians, no, no, we're not part of that. Leave us alone. We're not part of NATO. We're not going to invade you. They took the other path. They want to be in. What are we learning? Do we have a NATO? Is NATO a well, NATO, proper NATO, alliance anymore? NATO has, has, has weakened over the years because uh, many of its members, and I'm thinking particularly of Germany and France, but other others as well, have not contributed significantly to the collective security. And I would say Putin absolutely understood that and saw that. Um, and that was part of, uh, uh, that was one of the factors that went into his thinking here. NATO, because the Germans had believed, you know, we do a lot of, and I, 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 had, I had this argument with a German diplomat a few years back. Um, where I said, what are you doing becoming dependent on Russia for energy? Uh, that's That makes no sense. And he said, no, Cliff, you don't understand. Russia's becoming dependent on us for euros, for money. They need that more than we need the energy. This is working. As long as we have business relations and economic relations, that will, that will keep Russia in line. That's what we got to do. And um, and by the way, I think it was it is, and I think Putin thinks it was odd and is odd and in, kind of incoherent for Biden um, to, on the one hand, make a, one of his highest priorities waging a war against fossil fuels, and also giving his blessing to Nord Stream Two, which would bring more energy from Russia to Germany and to Europe, and and make them more dependent. On Putin's fossil fuels, how do you do both those things at the same time and not see that there's a there's a there's a conflict in that? So NATO is 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 right now getting somewhat stronger. The Germans are still not doing what I th all I think they should be doing as the richest and leading country in 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 Western Europe. Giving you know they finally at the end of the day just have decided to to give Leopard tanks. The U.S. is giving the Abram tanks, which makes it a little easier. Um, that's helpful, but there's a lot more they should be doing. A lot more France sh should be doing, and a lot of the other countries that are not that are simply not ready. They don't have militaries ready to fight to fight wars. And what you want your enemy to know is you. If if you don't want to fight a war, your enemy needs to know that you are ready to fight a war and can fight one successfully. This is a somewhat of a paradox, but it's really not that hard a paradox to get your your your, your mind around. Um, so anyway. Germany, I would think, is somewhat constrained, first of all, by its enormous trade relations with Russia and also its enormous trade relations with Iran. I mean, Germany still, despite sanctions and despite the things the Iranians do that we find abhorrent, um, maintains tremendous trade with Iran. So is Germany's economic position part of the reason it's not the NATO member it should be? Yeah, I think that the simple. I won't go on about it because okay. the simple answer is yes. Yes, one is they want to make they want to sell Mercedes Benz and all these countries. Two, they want energy from all these countries. Three, they have they have labored under the delusion that if you have economic relations with these countries, you'll have good relations, and that America can worry about these things. We don't have to. We can just get rich and take our vacations in the south of Spain. And so they do. Yeah. Okay. Looking at the military setup. Um, we're going to talk about our problems at the moment in, in a minute, having to do with reducing our supplies and our stocks and our stores and all of that. But it turns out that the Russian military machine that the United States and NATO had been afraid of for many, many years or worried about turns out to be kind of garbagey in many ways. Uh, they were taping GPS transponders to the fronts of the tanks and things like that. Their military command structure doesn't look all that good either. Was Putin duped by his military? I mean, we understand what Putin wants. I completely agree with you on what 
Putin was looking for. I think he thought he was going to get it from his military, and he didn't. I think that's absolutely true. I think he 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 thought his mil he believed his military was mighty in a way that it's not, and was sophisticated and ready in a way that it has not been, and his generals weren't tremendously corrupt as they have been. No, I think he he believes that uh, they that they failed him, and that and he was really. I mean, two things surprised him: one, that his military wasn't good, and two, that the Ukrainians didn't roll over, uh, because you could say, and you know, when I took uh, Crimea, they kind of you know. They whined a bit and licked their wounds, but they didn't really do much. I think he had no idea they would fight back uh, the, the way they did. So that's so his military is not as good. By the way, this is one benefit for the uh, secondary benefit for the U.S. is people also see that Russian military weapons are not so good. And American military weapons are really quite good. And so if you're in the market over the next few years to buy military hardware or so, where do you want to buy it from? From Russia? I don't think so. You want to buy it from the U.S. That's that's actually a good thing for us. So we'd rather have nations dependent on us. We'd rather have um, our our skilled workers producing these weapons. Now that gets into a whole other thing. I can tell you're thinking about. Right? I know what you're thinking. That is where we're going. And I know where you're going. Um, but um, but that is but that is a good subsidiary benefit of what's going on now is that our weapons our weapons are being tested against Russian weapons, and it's very clear who wins. Yeah, and unfortunately, Iranian drones are being tested on the battlefield. You know, so there's all kinds of stuff going on here. Um, the the Iranian Russian military alliance should give Israel um, hives, and it probably does. But let's go to that thing that we tiptoe around, and that is our military capability and our ability to supply our friends. Sure, they want our stuff because it's better. We don't have our stuff. It's going to take us almost three years to get Stinger missiles. We ran a drill, a HIMARS drill, HIMARS being the hot thing on the military market these days, um, with the Japanese. And our missile tubes were empty because we don't have any HIMARS missiles to put in the tubes because we gave it to Ukraine. One of the things that we are not doing, and this is a role for Congress, I suppose, and I think there are two roles for Congress, is to ensure that we replace our stocks. We are way behind. The supply chain stinks. A lot of it relies on things that come from China. Uh, we're not there. So people may want to buy from us, but we are not necessarily in a position to sell. Congress could fix that. Congress could also appoint an inspector general to see where our money and our stuff has gone in Ukraine. Not to say we shouldn't help them or supply them, but um, we're doing it without a lot of oversight. So we have a lot to do, don't we? We have a huge amount to do, and I and I and I would I would actually push it a little bit further because I would argue, and I think you agree with me on this: our defense industrial base is nowhere near where it needs to be, especially if you believe, as I do, but more importantly, as H.R. McMaster does, historian Neil Ferguson does, um, Congressman Mike Gallagher does. These are pretty smart people on these issues. That we are in a second Cold War, a new Cold War, and it's a more challenging Cold War than the first one because it's led by China, which is stronger, richer, more military adept than the Soviet Union ever was, plus Russia, plus North Korea, plus Iran, as I said. So if this is a new Cold War, we need to take it seriously, and that means we need that it should be a high priority to reestablish our defense industrial base. That should be, a, frankly, a higher priority than the transition from fossil fuels to wind and solar power that it, that seems to be the, and it, that is a, a, among the highest priorities of this administration, along with equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, we have to see a Cold War takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of attention, if we understand that's what we're in, some people do, some people don't, then we need to think, how do we do two things? How do we keep the Cold War cold? And how do we win at the end of the day? And and all that. Now, your next question is going to be, yeah, but how do you get the defense industrial base up to where it should be? That's not so easy. And you're absolutely right. How did you right. know that was my question? I know that was your question. And you're absolutely right. And you know more about this and, you are, and you're in close relations with people who know more about this than I am. And I have people on, on the staff at FDD who know more about it. But I would just say this. In the late 1930s, after uh, close to a decade of severe, severe economic depression, 
Uh, Roosevelt understood that we, the United States, needed to be the arsenal of democracy, needed not only to prepare uh, to 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 turn out weapons and 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 um, ship other things for our allies so they could fight a war, but also that we might be in this war and we would need it. And we became the arsenal of democracy. At this point, should we be in an arsenal of democracy? I think so. And how did he do it at the end of a depression? It's an amazing thing. Now, if he could do that, could we not do something along those lines so we could be producing stingers and javelins uh, at, a, at a higher rate? Well, we could, but it's got to be a, a spending priority and it's got to be a, a, a national strategic priority. And it's got to be more important than the, than the other things this administration has considered to be. Uh, their priorities, as I say, such as a global transition away from fossil fuels to green fuels. And that's a whole other discussion because I don't think what we're calling green fuels are so green. Not if you see the mining going on for cobalt in, in, in Central Africa, not if you understand uh, what how, how land is used by solar, by solar panels and have no other use for animals or plants, not if you understand what happens to birds and bats from wind power. That's a whole nother discussion, but it's an important one. Uh, what we need to be looking at is the, uh, I believe, the, the national security threat that we face, the Cold War that we are now, that is being waged against us, and what we do about that. So you put your finger on two things that Roosevelt had in the late 30s. First of all, a mindset that understood that the world was a dangerous place. Uh, we tend to have politicians these days, most of them, not all of them, and there are some really good ones, uh, who think that the way around this is economic or cultural or whatever, and not military. So he had that. He also had a depression, and the depression meant that he had a lot of people who needed jobs. And the jobs that were available, those military jobs were a lot simpler than they are today. The problem for us is we're going to have to create supply chains that are very, very complicated, and we don't necessarily have the right unemployed people. So it's a long, it's a long road to hoe. A harder I, I, it is, it technological is. road to hoe. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, and, we and can that's true. We can do it. And by we the way, and, and to make it even harder in a certain way, we we now should know that our economic relations with the Communist Chinese Party um, have been um deleterious to our national interests and not in a lot of ways. I take the view that we that we cannot entirely dis decouple or disengage from the Chinese economically. We can't do that, but we need to disengage in terms of strategic supply chains as quickly as we can. That's important. Understanding that and which we which not everybody does on Wall Street, not everybody does in the Treasury Department, that there is no such thing as a Chinese company that does not report to the Chinese Communist Party. Right. So the rethink has to be on our side. I mean, yeah. we have to decide yeah. where we're yeah. going. Now, while we do that, let's move to Asia then. While we're doing this and we're thinking about what we might need to defend Taiwan, how close are the Taiwanese, do you think, to being able to defend themselves? What do we need to give that? We're giving Ukraine everything Ukraine says it needs. What do we have to give Taiwan? Yeah, it's, it's we need to give Taiwan a lot. And Taiwan needs to, do, I think, needs to do a lot more on its own as well. Um, and they've started to, but not enough, because what you want to do, you, you, what do you want? Again, we, we mentioned the, the, the concept of deterrence by denial. What, what you want is not that a war comes and Taiwan defends itself adequately. What you want is that Xi Jinping looks and says, I'm not sure I can take Taiwan and I'd be humiliated if I didn't. And if I didn't do it soon, and I don't want to wipe out all the industry in Taiwan, because then what's the point? I need to have that industry intact. So maybe I shouldn't do it by military force. I'm not going to do it, he might think, through military force, unless I have at least an 80% chance of success. 50% chance is not good enough for me. But he wants it very badly. So you want to give Taiwan, and you want Taiwan to have the ability to um, to defend itself. There's a real problem in terms of U.S. involvement because we're not just talking as we are with Ukraine about, okay, we're not going to get involved, but we will give them every every chance to succeed against this aggression. We're talking about the possibility of the U.S. actually being involved in such a conflict. I think four times Biden has said, yes, we'd be involved, and then uh, we, we would defend Taiwan militarily. His staff has walked that back because we've always had strategic 
ambivalence on this question. In other words, well, we don't know what we do. The problem with Biden and saying, and a lot of people have praised Biden, good for him, he's saying, we'll defend Taiwan. Well, the problem is if you will the ends, you must will the means. So if you're going to say that, I want to know that he is support he that he is funding and, and, and the, the particularly the Navy, though also the Air Force, in such a way that if there is a conflict, we would win it. And that message is being conveyed to Xi Jinping that I, I don't want to get involved with in a conflict with the US because I wouldn't win it. Because if Xi Jinping thinks I would, he would win it. He's more likely to do it. Again, peace through strength, not peace through weakness. And I don't see Biden doing that. We've had war, we have war games that show we wouldn't do well. Uh, are we willing to see two or three Navy destroyers sunk with their crew to the bottom of the South China Sea? Really? Uh, so I would ra- I would rather see de- uh, again. I want to see deterrence by making adversaries think they should. By the way, that should have been the case with Ukraine. Had they instead of saying, "Oh, we don't want to provoke Putin," we should have been saying, "Let's give everything we can to Ukraine early on." So Putin looks over the fence and says, "Eh, this won't be so easy even for my formidable army. Let me try something. Let me see if I can seduce them into a closer alliance." Nothing. By the way, Putin. This is Putin also in his thinking. He does not want to see Ukraine, which he thinks is Russian as a free and democratic country. And that was the direction it was going. I was there, you know, a few times in the last few years. I was there as a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, USERF. I was there as an election observer for the last election. People were very proud that they were voting, that they had freedom, that they could talk to people like me and say what they wanted and not think they're going to get interrogated by spy services or go to jail. They liked freedom. If Russians were to see that next door in another country just like theirs, Putin didn't like that idea at all. And that's that was all that, that that's also because that's he was afraid that might be inf- infectious. And it, similarly, Xi Jinping sees Taiwan as a free country where people elect their leaders and all that, that's a terrible example for people in mainland China to have. So he's not happy about that either. But you, but, but you have to be way stronger than your enemies. If you, 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 Your enemies have got to think this is not going to be a fair fight. We can't take these guys on. That's what deters them. And that's because you, you want to not have the fight. That's even better than winning the fight. So... Let's move the conversation over to another part of the world. Let's go to Israel because we don't have a whole lot of time left and I can't can't not do Israel. So the Israelis have um, managed to put up that kind of front in many ways against many of their adversaries, former adversaries who don't want to fight with them anymore. Uh, A little less so among the Palestinians because they see Israel as as, beholden to us. But as a national matter, Israel in CENTCOM and Israel in uh, exercises with CENTCOM and UCOM. All that stuff is just marching along here, independent of the political problems between the Biden administration and the Netanyahu government. Um, do you see this as evidence that, first of all, the U.S. military sees what the problem is in the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, and that they believe they're going to work with Israel to solve that problem, which means to take out Iran? Um, okay, a couple of things. One is, I just want to point out, this gets back to where you started the conversation, because Israelis are not great believers that, oh, all wars have to end, and peace is the natural state of mankind. They, Israelis, I think to their great credit, say, you know what, we have to defend this country, we may always have, I'm going to, I defend this country, my parents defended this country, my kids defend this, my grandkids will defend this country. And those who can't, deal with that maybe you know move to berkeley or brooklyn or something but most of them say well, that's what that's what you have to do and i have to you know i i, I sometimes take a active duty u.s military officers to uh, israel for sort of familiar to familiarize them with not just with israel but with the whole middle east situation and uh, i and one of the things that always strikes them is the israelis get it in a way most americans don't here in america like one percent of the population understands we have to defend our we have to defend our country and we have to be prepared to defend our country and that means we have to put on the uniform and learn to do things like you know shoot guns and that's that's vital and they don't even appreciate it and there it's a society that is militarized without being militaristic and i gotta tell you people i take over there they get that and they appreciate that now i don't 
I think I think it's very clear that Netanyahu's main priority coming into office, whatever else you want to say or think about him, is we have a we have an existential threat from the Islamic Republic of Iran. They they are threatening us with genocide. They are. And the world says, yeah, we don't, you know, poor Palestinians in Janine. What are you doing there? Um, and he need, he thinks I think he thinks it's his mission to do something about that. I doubt he think uh, there have been there were just military exercises that the Israelis and Americans had, and that's good and it's symbolic and it's great. I'm dubious that the Biden administration is going to give a lot of support to 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 Netanyahu if Netanyahu decides I have to act within the next two years against the Islamic Republic of Iran and prevent them from getting uh, nuclear weapons capability in the near future. I. I'm doubtful of that. It's not impossible. Um, Netanyahu may be saying, you don't have to do much. You, you just have to have my back. And here's the following ways. And here's why I have to do it. And here's why. But I think it's more likely, uh, 5149, um, Netanyahu thinks I need to pre- prepare. I need to understand where they are. There's various ways I can slow their progress. And let's see who the next president is. And maybe it's somebody I can work with against this common enemy. Um, even even better, he would never say that, but I think that may be in in his mind. Um, and don't forget when I say that Iran is the is is an existential threat. There's also Hezbollah, which is a strategic threat, and Hamas and is Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and those are tactical threat tactical threats. But this is the amazing thing about Israel. They have to be fighting all these enemies at one time and prepared to fight all these enemies at one time. This is something you know quite amazing militarily. We think, oh, should our military be prepared to fight in the Pacific? Okay, well, can we can structure? Oh, should we be prepared to fight in Europe? Oh, should we, you know, should we fight terrorism? Oh, and it's more than you know. It's not just walking and chewing gum. It's walking, chewing gum, and juggling at the same time. I yeah, agreed. But what I think I'm seeing is, at least in the CENTCOM format, they are doing exercises that indicate that they will work together in a broad area. I don't want to say what that broad area is. Maybe it's the Red Sea. Maybe it's the Persian Gulf. Maybe it's over the land mass of Iran. I'm not sure. But I do see a difference between this commander of CENTCOM and the number of exercises and the number of times he's been in Israel, which is five in the last seven months. Um, so I wonder if there's something under the surface my impression, that will allow them to work together very efficiently. Well, my, my impression is there is, but keep in mind that the military takes orders from the White House. That, that yeah. When we talk about the president's commander-in-chief, he's not commander-in-chief of the country, he's commander-in-chief of the military. So there's only so far he can do. His recommendations may be what they are. I think he absolutely understands that if we, that we should be prepared to coordinate closely with the Israelis. If you want to be able to coordinate closely and effectively with the Israelis in the future, you better practice for that in the present. That's the only way you learn how to do these things. So these exercises, they're important symbolically, but they're also important operationally because you learn how to do these things. And I do think that you know people in the, in the military have great deal of respect for the Israelis and 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 for how the Israelis operate as a military compared to the other militaries they see, say, in Europe or almost anywhere else in the, in the world. So I think this is what you're talking about is a good thing. Um, but is it um, is it decisive? Does it does it predict the future? Is it dispositive? That I don't know that we can say that. I'd like to think so, but I, I'm not sure we can be confident. But I can be hopeful. Cliff, we're coming to the end of our time, and I warned you about this, that when we close the program, we like to go out on a positive note. You haven't given us, except for that last sentence. That last sentence is pretty positive about coordination between CENTCOM and Israel. Um, You haven't given us much that's positive. So here's the question, and you can deal with it any way you like. If countries get the leadership they deserve, or at least they get the leadership that they permit to arise, first of all, what does that say about us? in our present state? And secondly, do you think we have the resilience to deal with a long-term crisis, which is the way you've described the war situation around the world? You go from the Russias to the Chinas to the Irans to Venezuela. So it's basically a war situation. It's going to stretch out 
over a long period of time. Are we prepared to deal with that? Can we make ourselves prepared to deal with that? I think we can, which is not the same as say we will or are. I think we're in a put it mildly in in, in a funk right now in in this country domestically as well. Um, I, I think there is resilience in this country. You know, there, I'll say two things that are hopeful. One is we talked about the depression of World War II, right? So my, you know, my, my, my father was a child of the depression, very poor. His father had very little, didn't have much work during the depression. At the age of 19, my father, uh, who had probably never been out of Brooklyn, maybe had been to Queens or Manhattan, is sent to the South Pacific. 19, he's a teenager still, and fights a, fights a war in the Philippines and New Guinea and Borneo and places like that, uh, and comes back and uh, from that war, which we, which we won, and, you know, manages to, to build a life and a family, and, and, and there was anti-Semitism, it was anti-Semitism that he experienced in the military as well. He didn't say, oh, when the world changes, uh, then things will be fine, I'm sure. But the other, but all these anti-Semites said, no. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna forge ahead, and I'm gonna make a living, have a family, have a good life. I can do that, and and and, and he did. And so after and, and the depression, World War II, those were harder periods than what we're going through right now. Even though I worry now, I do worry about a lot of the political class. On the other hand, there are people, say in Congress. Who I who are young people who I see as kind of the future, and I'm very who are so smart and who are principled, and I have a lot of respect for. A lot of them wore the uniform, so I'm I'm going to be honest. And I think of people like Mike Gallagher, just this Congressman Gallagher. What he's what a brilliant guy he is. Um, Mike Waltz from Florida is another one. Dan Crenshaw, Mike uh, Cotton. Uh, I see these guys. If these guys are our future political leaders, um, that that makes that makes me more hopeful, and I think they may be more persuasive that we will that we can come out of this 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 funk we're in, and that we can pre- prevail against our enemies and pre- foreign, and maybe our enemies domestically too. Those people who are just committed to loathing America and 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 reducing America. Uh, to build, I guess, on the on the ashes of their with their own power. So there's reason for hope. That's a great. That's great. I wasn't sure you could do. I'll be perfectly honest. Woo! I wasn't, I wasn't sure, sure I could do that either. I don't know because it's tough. But you did. You got there, and I think that's a great note. I also love that you ended on uh, some of the people that are in Congress today who have the ability to make the laws and hold the hearings, and hold people accountable, and do the things we need to do. So I'm really happy that you went in that direction. For all of this, and for a great, um, almost an hour, wandering around a globe that's not very happy, giving us lots of good information, thank you very much on behalf of the Jewish Policy Center. Everybody, Cliff May. Thanks, Shoshana. Thanks to all of you.